You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. Good morning, Real Life. I was super late for a service, so here we go. You guys ready? Buckle up, and maybe we'll get some light on the subject. There we go. I should have cued that. That was awesome. I should have just like motioned, just like, (laughs) I'm wasting time. Okay, here we go. Uh, We have been in Revelation. We opened in Revelation 1, shocker, and uh, talked about the apocalyptic literature genre and introduced us to that. When we got to Revelation 2 and 3, we kind of skipped over that and referred you back a couple years ago to a series we did on the seven churches. I believe it was in the summer, a couple summers ago. Um, Don't quote me on that, but go find it and review that. Tons of great material in there. If you did go back and review that, one of the things that I hope you would see if we were good at teaching that at all is we are trying to impress upon you that when John is writing the book of Revelation, John has these two simultaneous, if I do that, it's four, these two simultaneous agendas, sources for his material that he's overlapping, simultaneously doing it at the same time. So on one hand, John is going to culture, and he's grabbing culture from uh, the world around him, and he's writing this incredibly relevant, subversive letter to the audience of his day. At the exact same time, he's getting all of his material from where? The text. Good. He's getting all of his material from the text, and, and not just the text, but relevant, culturally relevant texts that's actually about the thing he's talking about over here. He's getting material from the text about passages that kind of talk about that from over here and putting it, oh. I remember being in Turkey and it, it was like three days in, I had been nodding. Like I was like, yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Like a lot of you will nod during the series. And then it clicked like three days in, three full days of studying in. And all of a sudden it it totally, and I went, oh, whoa. Like that's, I can hardly even comprehend how John's able to do that. And I know he had help. Um, (laughs) I, I told the first service, they don't laugh at my jokes. I've been traveling all summer. They don't laugh anywhere else. You guys laugh better than they do. So I should... I should be, I should accept what God gives me and be glad for it. They don't laugh at my jokes in Indiana. Um, But there's, what was I talking about? I did that to the last service too. Anyway, so then we got into Revelation 4 and 5 and we've been trying to put this culture text, culture text. We're trying to put that in front of you over and over and over again because what you've been handed is another kind of way to interact with Revelation, typically. Chances are good you've been handed Revelation, end times, future, scary, Iran, Turkey, Russia, all that, like, okay? You've probably been handed that, and we're wanting to ask, we want to use the same solid biblical hermeneutic, fancy word, that we've been using for everything else, okay? So biblical hermeneutic, that's the way we interpret the Bible. We're concerned with authorial intent. It's not getting any better, is it? Hmm. Authorial intent means what is John, what does John mean when he wrote it, and what does the audience hear when they hear it? 
That's the conversation. So we want to use a biblical hermeneutic that stays tied to that conversation. No different than Romans, no different than Leviticus, no different than Hebrews, no different than anywhere else we've been. We're not going to use some new code to decipher the book of Revelation. It's going to be the same hermeneutic looking at genre, understanding all that. You guys tracking with me? Fantastic. Last week, we talked about Revelation 5. I hope. I wasn't here. I haven't listened to it yet. It comes before Revelation 6. Revelation 5, we encounter a scroll that nobody can open. And John weeps because there's no one, no one worthy to open the scroll. But then he hears. There is one who is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns and you expect to see like, like that. Like, mm-hmm, only Jesus, right? But you expect, but what do they see? They see, he sees a lamb that has been slain. This is triumph? John says, yes. Our king has shown us a new order, and it's the only order that's truly worthy to sit on a throne, to open a scroll. And so this order of a slain lamb You have to keep that in the back of your mind as we go into the seals of Revelation 6. And these seals are popped open, and as every seal is popped open, something big and new happens in the world, and it's big, and it's domination, and it's chaos, and it's triumph. And you have to remember that who was worthy to open the scroll? A slain lamb. So in the midst of all of this, ah, John says, that's the only thing I got for you, ah! Uh, John says there's, there's something bigger, wider, deeper, better than that. Uh-huh. Okay, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. Let's jump into Revelation 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Aha, we have found the, white, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah, right? Okay, so hold on, we'll unpack that some more. But the first horse that he sees is a white horse. Now remember in apocalyptic literature, colors, numbers, images, all these things are symbolic and point to something else. So white is always the color of imperial aspiration, Imperial conquest, political conquest, is white. It stands for victory. Whenever a Roman official or an emperor or a Caesar or a governor comes riding into town, they come riding in on a stallion color white because white symbolizes in their world and even ancient biblical literature, literature, it symbolizes political imperial triumph. So he sees a white horse. Realize that the readers of Revelation are like, yep, I know all about that. That's my world. They're not thinking, oh, the four horsemen coming later. They're thinking, no, that horse comes today. That horse is my world. Look at what the writer has. The writer has a bow and a crown given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted. Now, in in apocalyptic literature, the red horse, symbolizing bloody war. Imperial conquest 
imperial Pax Romana comes through bloody war. In fact, Rome's slogan was piety, war, victory, peace. How does peace come? Peace comes through this fourfold formula. We, we hold to the religion of our forefathers. Sound familiar? And then we go to war, and God gives us, gods give us victory, and then there's peace. That's how peace comes imperially. That's how peace comes. You might remember Julius Caesar's great statement, uh, vini, vidi, vici. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that correctly but apparently nobody else does either, so that's good. Um, I came, I saw, I conquered. This is how peace comes. And so the white horse is followed appropriately in John's vision by the red horse because peace in the Roman world comes through blood. Does it sound very peaceful? Interesting. So white followed by red. Uh, The writer was permitted to take peace from the earth. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) <laughs> I love that about John. Like, this is how Rome says peace comes, and John's like, no, this writer takes peace from the earth, doesn't give it to him. Okay, nobody else likes that, but I do. So that people should slay one another, and was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice. So the black horse symbolizes economic injustice, because this is all what follows, Imperial conquest in a, in, a, in a Greco-Roman world comes through war, and we know this in our world. War has economic ramifications, does it not? And so there's all kinds of economic injustices that come, whether it's because of, uh, you, you could say disease, and, but most, most, most importantly, you could say uh, famine. You could say, I mean, I know I have friends that... Uh, fought in the most recent wars, one of the biggest things that happens in the region is now the whole region is laid, and now how do you, re, how do you rebuild? Like the white horse, followed by the red horse, followed by the black horse. Guess where the, well, we've got to finish this one, but guess where the next horse is going to be? Never mind. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. We actually found that exact verbatim, word for word, on a clay tablet in the ruins of Philadelphia. That, was it. that wasn't a cooked up like John's like trying to make something up. That was actually what was happening in his day. That's a hundred times, count it, over a hundred times the inflation of the same price during the reign of Augustus. Right? White horse followed by red horse followed by black horse. Do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, or a green horse, or a dappled horse. You've got to figure out how to do the translation. It's really tricky. But a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Takes this Greco-Roman idea of hell, and Hades, and, and the birthplace of evil, and here comes this fourth horse. Why? Because that's where this worldview ultimately leads. White horse to red horse to black horse to ultimately, where does it all lead? To death. I mean, Ro- Paul told us this in Romans, the wages of sin, the wages of this worldview is what? Where does it, what's the only paycheck you're going to get from this worldview? Death. So this is where it has to lead. And, and Paul, excuse me, John references this again. This isn't about the future. I, I'm not discounting if you believe that mystically God could still be talking to us about the future, that, 
we can talk about that some other time. That's fine. John is not talking about that. John is not talking about that. John is talking to his audience about their world. When they hear this, they're not confused. They're not, no, they know. White horse, yep. Red horse, been there. Black horse, know all about it. Pale horse, my brother, last week, my niece, my, they have stories, they have names. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, and he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. So now we have the martyrs. Why? Because that's how this worldview works. White, red, black, pale, and what's happened? Believers have experienced the knock at the door with a Roman soldier when they answer that says, you're expected to appear at 2 p.m. this afternoon at the Praetanium where you will offer the imperial incense to worship the emperor. And we have thousands of records, people that compromised and did, and we also have thousands of records of martyrs that went to the Praetanium at 2 p.m. and said, I can't, and I won't, and they were executed. This is the logical, this is the world they live in. This is the logical progression. With these four horsemen, what does it lead to? It leads to the hosts of slain underneath the altar. The souls of those who had been slain, listen, for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. John's like, trust me, we know how this story ends, but we don't know how long we're going to be here. So you have to hang in there. You have to keep overcoming. You have to keep going to the Praetanium. You have to keep going to the sword. Because we know that the slain lamb, what was he? What was the lamb? The lamb was slain. We were told, we were shown, it was modeled to us how to live in the kingdom economy. We have to trust that that's the way to do this because that's how our Jesus did it. They were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When they opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals and the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, and I think we automatically go the great day of judgment before the Lord. Please understand, this is not how... What, what, what would have struck them is not the theological judgment of God. What would have struck the original audience, everyone... Because not in my world, in my world, the rich, the wealthy, the powerful, they're the ones that get up. They do the oppressing. They're not the oppressed. And John says, no, no, no. In God's greater economy, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, everyone slave and free. How many of them? All of them. Everyone. Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So much I want to pull apart from that. Uh-huh. It wasn't a reference to the blood moons. Can I just say that out loud? It wasn't a reference to the blood moons. It's a reference to ancient prophets talking about what happens when empire comes to take everything you've ever known. 
and the sun fails and the moon fails and the stars fall from the sky and it's not literal. It's all image to say everything you've ever known is falling apart around you. This whole passage of Revelation is all about this stinks. I about said the word that would have gotten me grounded when I was living at home. A vacuum does. Um, This stinks. This world is chaos. This is, ah. Again, that's all I got for you. Ah. And John says, yeah, we know. Now, here's, now, so that was culture. Realize that's a pretty good letter just on its own. Like we could stop there and be like, man, John, that was good. Like mic drop, walk out, boom. But there's more going on because John's getting all of his material from where? The text. Did you know the four horsemen already existed 600 years before John wrote? Ah, it's in Zechariah, which I know you're really familiar with. <laughs> Again, we got to know our Old Testament or else we misread our New Testament. Zechariah 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold, this is Zechariah, not Revelation. Zechariah. 700 years, 600 years, maybe 500 years prior. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had a red horse. Sound familiar? The second chariot, black horses. Hmm. Third chariot, white horses. And the fourth chariot, dappled horses. Hmm. All of them strong. Did you realize John didn't make that up? Like John's calling back to material that Jew- the Jewish readers of Revelation know. They're familiar with this. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, they have this memorized. What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven, presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them and the dappled ones go towards the south country. When the strong horses came out and they were impatient to go and patrol the earth, and he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And he cried to me, behold, those who go towards the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. You see, when the Gentiles hear this letter, they can hear the culture and they can be like, oh man, John, that was good. Like you're doing the whole Rome thing and down with Rome and, you know, thumbs down to Pax Romana. Like we get it. And the Jew sitting next to him is going, oh, that's true. That's true. But we got to talk after we're done here because I got to tell you about Zechariah. What? There's more? Oh yeah, yeah, we've been doing this for a long time. Seriously though, okay, let's just keep moving. Uh, we have to know the context of Zechariah 6 because he just, he's obviously quoting Zechariah 6. So what does he want his Jewish readers to be nudging the Gentile here is going, oh, let me tell you what else John just said. Listen, and the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the ex, do you ever get tired of reading Bible names? Can we just call them like H Money, T Dog, and JD? Take, <laughs> some jokes, you just lose control. It's unbelievable. Take, take, me, take from the exiles H-Money, T-Dog, and J-D who have arrived from Babylon and go to the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from there, them, that was actually Hebrew. That's the, that's the right one. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Yahshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne. 
And the council of people shall be, uh, shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tedog, and JD, and Hen, the son of Zephaniahu. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. What is the driving message of Zechariah 6? As Babylon is crushing you, Zechariah 6 says, there's coming a day you've got to overcome because there's coming a day where there will be a king. And no, it's not just talking about Jesus. It's talking about their world. Yes to Jesus. Yes, yes, yes to Jesus. But more than that, more than that, it's talking about the way the world works. This is how the world works. We've been here before. We know, why is John quoting this? Let's finish. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass. This will come to pass if you diligently, oh, what, what? Obey the voice of the Lord your God. And John writes this to the audience of Revelation and says, guys, we've got to stay true to the story. We've got to obey the way of the rabbi. Only then will all of this come to pass. So stay strong. One of my favorite quotes, I was sitting around the fire with Aaron Couch. You know him? Um, he's in Pullman today. Sitting around the fire with him on Friday night. As Shabbat was coming in, we were talking about the sermon. And he said, you know, I think the, and I don't know if he stole this from somebody else, but I'm going to give him the credit. Every now and then, he's really brilliant. Okay. He'll watch this, so that was more of a wink to him. Um, he he said, I think, I think in our world, our American Christianity, we know God is the deliverer, or we think we do. We want God to be the deliverer, but for the people of the Bible, God was the overcomer. So that means, that means in our culture, when we have problems, we want God to deliver us from them, because God's the deliverer. But that's not how it works to the people in the Bible, and every audience of the Bible would tell you that. God doesn't always deliver. He does, but not most of the time. Most of the time, God teaches us to overcome because he's the overcomer. Don't tell me that's not Jesus. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. See, I don't think, I think we're all like, oh, God's gonna deliver us. Maybe God's gonna teach us how to overcome in the midst of chaos. Okay, now I'm getting wound up. Let's go. Uh, so let's, let's look at, when we talk about Sheol, or excuse me, when we talk about death and famine and plague and sword in Revelation, what are, the, what are the first readers hearing? What about Hosea 13? Do you remember the fourth horse? What was it? It was uh, white and red and black and pale. And the pale horse, what, what, who was riding it? Death. That was weird. Like it made death like a pronoun, not like a noun. Death became a pronoun. I wonder if they thought about Hosea, which also made death a pronoun. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? That's weird, talking about death as a pronoun. Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. I wonder if they thought about, I wonder if they thought about Jeremiah. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword, those of you who are really good with Revelation, you know that that's going to be a direct quote later in the book. If it's for the sword, to the sword they will go. If to death, then to death they will go. 
This is the way the world works. Isn't God going to deliver us from the sword? Someday. Someday. But maybe not today. And so if you're destined for the sword, buckle up. Those who are for famine to famine. Those who are for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over those, them four kinds of destroyers. How many destroyers? Whoa, like four what? <laughs> Declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I wonder if they thought about Jeremiah 24. I will send sword, famine, pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. Here's their point. John's point, we've been here before. We've been here before. We know how to do this. We've died before. We've been crushed by, the, by our enemies. We've experienced empire over and over and over again. We know how to do this. Maybe some of those Gentiles didn't, and the Jews are going, and they're getting scared. Do I understand John correctly? Yes, you do, but don't worry. We've been here before. Let us show you the way. Uh, Ezekiel 5. I will send famine and wild beasts among you, and I will, they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring a sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Well, let's just keep moving because I'm going to run out of time. Yep, here I come. Uh, for in my jealousy, what about, what about the earthquakes? There's like 20 different passages you could choose from in the Old Testament for your earthquakes. What about this one from Ezekiel 38, which is about how God's going to put everything back together? It's kind of weird, but... For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field are all creeping things that creep on the ground. And all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. My point, I got one more example. My point I'm trying to communicate is that John is is speaking to his culture a beautiful letter and pulling all of his material from relevant Old Testament texts that tell them the same message. Message, you have to overcome. I know things are bleak. I know things are grim. You have to overcome. Hang in there. Hang in there. Hang in there. Seven times in the letters, it said, to he who overcomes. To he who overcomes not to he who is delivered, but to he who overcomes. By your strength, of course not. By the strength of the Spirit and the power of God, but you have to show up and punch play over and over. That was a P90X reference. Whoa, that was weird. <laughs> Tony Horton just keeps showing up and punching play. Sorry. Wow. Uh, one more illustration. What, what about, so let's, let's review this. Re Revelation 6, we read this earlier. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I wonder if they thought about Isaiah 34. They had it memorized. It's Isaiah Isaiah 34, all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies shall roll up like a scroll. All the host shall fall, host refers to stars, as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. 
Okay? Now, I want to I close with a challenge. It's like all heady and academic, and it's like, wow, wow, Revelation's not what I thought. Wow, Revelation's... But if we don't apply this and take this home somehow, I have failed you as a teacher, as a preacher, and as a leader. So I want to challenge us this morning. Now, here's the deal. I don't typically do this. This is not my style. Uh, but I don't... I want to challenge us, but I don't necessarily want to offend you unless that's what God wants to do. Like, if God wants to offend you, it's all good. But... But if I don't want to offend you because I could have chosen my words better. So I wrote out the ending of my sermon. And I want to I put it on the screen. I want to read it because I've chosen my words very intentionally and carefully. Is that okay? Okay. I, I don't, it's not my intention to pour, like, inappropriately challenge you. Uh, challenge you? Yeah. If God, whatever. Here we go. Here we go. These people were not baffled by the contents of Revelation. The people there understood the immediate application to their immediate context. The Jewish listeners in their midst were equipped to expound on the teaching of John deliberately buried in his letter as a source of encouragement and exhortation. Please understand that the original readers would certainly not have projected these pictures and ideas into the future. These references were about their own brothers and sisters, uncles and cousins. The souls of those who had been slain were people they knew by name. I believe one of the reasons that you and I have a hard time interpreting and understanding the book of Revelation, the reason that we immediately project its meaning into the future is because we corporately, I'm not talking personally, I know that personally, some of you guys are going through immense struggling, suffering. I get that. Some of you have seen death this week. Okay, I'm not talking about personally. I'm talking about the corporate people of God, us together. Does that make sense? Okay, don't, like, I'm not, like, dissing or, or, or trivializing your personal struggle. I'm talking about us corporately. It's because we corporately don't know what it's like to be on the side of true persecution. We don't know what it's like to sit on the other side of the Roman sword. We don't know what it's like to watch the systemic and premeditated pursuit and extermination of our fellowship. And it affects our ability to understand an apocalyptic letter written to a group of people who fear for their lives. We don't know how to hear its message of perseverance and the call to remain vigilant and steadfast even to the point of death. Quite frankly, we have spent most of our time at the handle end of the sword. For the last 1,700 years, we have fought for our own rights instead of pursuing the self-sacrificial way of Jesus. We've been more concerned with culture wars than we have been with anything that would have ever occupied the thoughts of those people who preserve the faith that we too often interpret, misinterpret. We have mistaken the loss of privilege for persecution. 
There is a host of people slain under the altar in the book of Revelation who cry out for us to remember what they signed up for, what they gave their lives for. They didn't give their lives so we could live comfortable American dreams and protect our privilege. They laid down their lives because it's what their rabbi did. He taught them how to trust in and live out a narrative of self-sacrifice. It's the story that you and I are invited to trust to. May we honor their memory, but more importantly, may we hallow the name of God. It's hard for us to hear the book of Revelation in our context and know what to do with it other than try to project like what, what tribe is going to win in the end instead of trying to figure out what this has to do with our Pax Americana politics. What Jesus, see, now I'm, I should just stick to what I wrote. Jesus is inviting us to the way of the slain lamb. It's the way that the kingdom of God triumphs. It does not triumph from the handle end of the sword. Now, uh, we need to close. I need to invite our servers to go back. We got some implications. So if you'll go back and get our elements and prepare to pass those out. If you're visiting with us today, we have an open table. That means that if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, um, join us, your family. We're going to hold this all together, and we're going to take it all together here in just a moment. First invocation. God remains unmoved in the face of worldly chaos. And this is one of the problems if we see God as deliverer, not God as overcomer, this becomes a real issue. When worldly chaos reigns, we're like, where's God? Why isn't he saving us from all of our troubles? God remains on his throne, redeeming the world, no matter what happens in the world's imperial systems around us. God remains unmoved in the face of worldly chaos. Next implication, you are never alone. There are always others in the story, past, present, and future. There are always others in the story, past, the slain martyrs under the altar, present. I can remember three years ago, the video put out by ISIS of 40 Christians unwilling to renounce their Jesus, who gave their lives on the beaches of Libya. Today, three years ago, there is a part of the body of Christ that's doing revelation today. And we forget that. Middle East, oh, what a mess. Somebody just told me the Moody Institute just put out somewhere between 60 and 80,000 people died this last year from persecution, true persecution. I don't know where that stat comes from or where we could trust it, but it's present. 
present, and future. It might not be my kids, it might not be your kids, it might not be my kids' kids, but somewhere along the way, this is the way the world works because empires don't last. Not ours. It's the way the world works. And at some point, our children's 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 somebody is going to find themselves at the wrong end of the sword. And we will need to have taught them about God the overcomer. Not the... Next implication. Our faith is built on the foundation of those who endured unbelievable persecution because of their ultimate belief in resurrection. Resurrection isn't just about going to heaven. Resurrection is about this world, this day. What order rules today? What economy actually works now? There was a second century martyr. Her name was Blandina. Blandina was... um, Uh, just gotten done weaning her newborn child when she was taken along with four other Christians into the arena, each assigned a gladiator. When they refused to renounce their Jesus, each gladiator was supposed to execute them with the Roman method of execution where they put the sword right inside the collarbone and shove it down through your heart. Blandina's executioner was a rookie and this was his first execution. He missed She took the sword, put it back up on her throat in the appropriate place, grabbed his hands, and guided his shaking hands to her own execution. How can you do that? Because you believe that what God is doing in this world and the order of resurrection has changed everything about everything. That true peace comes through a lamb that has been slain, not the one who holds the sword. Last implication. Our belief in resurrection should call us to lay down our fear and walk shamelessly in the way that leads to life. Every year when I go and I end my trip in Turkey studying those that gave their life for a faith that I dabble in, I come back wanting to begin to tap into a walk that would honor the life that they've lived and the deaths that they died. I don't have to live at the end of the sword, at least not right now. But I still want to live the order, be a child of the resurrection. It should change the way that I shop and the way that I dress. It should change the way that I eat and the way that I fellowship. It should change the way that I work at my job. It should change everything about everything because the world is run by a slain lamb who is worthy to open the scrolls. It should change everything. And that we hold in our hands. We hold in our hands. This is the, this is the model. This is the reminder Jesus said forever, whenever you do this, you can be reminded of this is, what it lo- this is what power looks like. This is what power looks like. Not nuclear test missiles being launched. Not political, <laughs> this is true power. This is true kingdom power. Somebody that says, I will lay down my life on behalf of others. This is the love that will ultimately conquer the world. This, this. And we get to take this and sign up yet again.
We get to sign up yet again. Soldiers in a completely different kind of war. We get to say, I'm in. Jesus took a piece of bread that night. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body. Take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. And later in the meal, he spoke of a cup, and this was more than just going to heaven. This was more than just our salvation. It was also what we were saved for, not just what we were saved from. This was, this was a model. This was, this was a Jesus saying, if I've done this for you, you get to do this for other people as well. Don't ever forget that this is the way of the kingdom, this. He took the cup saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And whenever you do this, Remember me. Let's remember the way of Jesus. Father God, I, I pray. I am so unfit to stand here and preach these things. Living the life that I live, waking up in the morning with the worries that I worry about. Uh, I am... Quite frankly, God, you could have chosen a better spokesperson. I, I don't live a life that the great cloud of witnesses would just be cheering over. I, but I want to. I, I want you to confront all the places where I've given myself over to fear all the places where I look out for my own comfort, my own security, all the places where, I've, where I believe that power and influence and imperial, where I've just missed your call. I, I want to be somebody that lays down my life. And maybe that, won't look, maybe that won't look like a physical representation in my life. Maybe it will. Maybe it will be a metaphor, but I want it to be true. I, I want to I lay down anything that I possess in order to give it away to others that need it. In order to show people a better order. The order of the slain lamb. So God, we love you. Uh, we pray everything in the name of the slain lamb, the, the, the buried lamb, the resurrected lamb named Jesus today. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.